0: Welcome to Axioms of Liberty Podcast, where we dive deep into the most philosophical thinkers of our times in order to help you get a better understanding of your world. And today, we are going to take another detour from our myth of national defense, and we are going to read an excerpt from Robert Lefreve and his little article. It's not very long don't have a whole lot of time today to uh really knock out some episodes i got things i gotta do outside of this but i definitely wanted to get another episode out today but didn't want to take too long of a break from pumping out some content for people who you know all those hungry minds out there of you guys that are actually actually listening to the podcast i didn't think anybody would listen to this shit but apparently there's a few of you out there that are actually listening so so the few of you that are out there listening, I salute you. I appreciate you. Thank you for, you know, taking the time out of your day and sharing your time with me to go with me on this journey to learn and to better understand these deeper topics of freedom and liberty and sovereignty. And with that, let's get on with today's article. And it's titled "Autocracy" by Robert LaFree. All history reveals the existence of the great human struggle for survival and supremacy. This struggle has two arenas, the arena of nature and the arena of political action. In the arena of nature man matches his wit, his skills and strength against his natural environment in order to rest from the forces and the materials of nature sufficient for his survival and comfort. In the arena of political action, Man arises his wits and skills and strength against others of his kind in an effort to obtain supremacy over them, and by this means, to control them to his advantage. In both of these arenas, human energy has always been organized. One of the earliest characteristics of man to be discovered is the characteristic of social organization. Although some theorists have held that men in the earliest times lived as isolated and organized units, no evidence has yet been unearthed to substantiate this theory as artifacts are uncovered and as scholars continue to probe a growing mountain of evidence reveals that individual human beings have coordinated their efforts in some kind of social structure for at least a millions of years of human and near human existence they united behind a skillful hunter or trapper maybe a perhaps a shaman or witch doctor they united behind a man of power or proper property Finally, they united behind a political leadership. When men joined forces in hunting and trapping and fishing, trading, or manufacture, they did so because it was clearly in their advantage to do so. Economic necessity is ever-present. Life on this planet does not favor the slothful or indolent. To live requires certain basic necessities and a host of comforts most men value far beyond their minimal caloric intake. When they combined their energies in the hunt or in other economic ventures, they did so motivated by a central desire to stay alive and to stay alive with a full stomach, relative security, and a degree of pleasure and satisfaction. They were motivated by a search for gain or profit. Conversely, they are motivated to escape the grim necessities the nature of the world forces upon men. To prevent the loss of life and items of value, great effort must be expended. From the earliest times and continuing to this day, every human being seeks to add his gains and to diminish or even eliminate his losses. That he acts at all can be attributed to economic necessity and to the fact that man has a sense of uneasiness occasioned by that necessity. If there were no uneasiness, no economic necessity, the chances are excellent that a man would not act at all. His ease would become apathy, his apathy stagnation and end his stagnation? Death. It is economic necessity and the urge to survive the postpone death, minimize stagnation, and overcome apathy. When men combine their energies into political organizations, a slightly modified motivation on the part of some can be discerned. Economic organization presumes individual self-seeking and even personal interests. Political organizations presume a search for the common good. Man, within a political structure, is not always seeking to benefit himself, he is seeking to benefit all. A political organization is nothing more or less than enforced altruism at the common expense. It is true, of course, that the professional politician has precisely the same personal motivation as the early hunter, forager, or even marauder. He is personally involved with making gains and preventing losses for himself, but he conducts his affairs within a structure which disregards the common nature of man and creates, instead, a class culture in which some men have authority over others, hence other power over other men. This political structure is invariably based upon the ability of some to exploit others to their own advantage by force or the threat of force. Economic structures, so long as they remain strictly economic, lack the ability to coerce anyone. Nature is the general coercer, demanding effort if death is to be postponed, but in economic structures, all men cooperate in one gigantic desperate effort to escape this reality. Their corporation is voluntary in the face of the common natural enemy, economic necessity. No man is forced to cooperate with anyone. He cooperates because it is in his advantage to do so. If it is not in his advantage to do so, or as he sees fit, he withholds his cooperation With economic structures, cooperation is sought on a voluntary basis for mutually held interest. If it is not forthcoming in a given case, the project is abandoned or cooperation is sought elsewhere. Within political structures, a mystique is summoned. It is presumed that the total numbers of a given group form a society. From this, it is but a step to assume that there is a kind of social entity having what has been called general will. Social responsibility, social consciousness, social conscience, social awareness, socialism. The presumed good of the social whole is contrasted against the actual good of each individual within the group. In order to provide the general good, private good and private interests are systematically ravaged. Human sacrifice makes its appearance. Any person who does not agree to be going or working for the general good can be forced by the strong or more numerous to help provide for it anyway. Repeated negligence or repeated resistance summons even larger employment of coercion. The person who will not submit to the theme of the general good is victimized. He is victimized up to and including his ultimate demise. If this is deemed in harmony with the general good, this is the single, unvarying characteristic of all political organizations. They require victims. When theocracies flourished, Either the shaman and the strongman combined their resources or a single man assumed both mantles. Human sacrifices for the general good became the murderous rule. Modern warfare is nothing more than mass sacrifice of opposing nationals for the general good. If Sherman was correct when he suggested that war is hell, then all political action is merely purgatory. It is the arena of the purge wherein those having power determine the names, the races, or the nationalities and faiths of their next victims. The mystique of enforced altruism now engulfs the world, virtually without numerically significant opposition. The masses of humanity, whether they view themselves as common men, aristocrats, intellectuals, or even mere observers, adhere to the common good's mystical illusion but it is important here that a fine line of demarcation be made there are certain things that men do in common they share a natural desire to live and to live in relative ease and security all men seek to own property they are driven by mutually experienced sense of frustration and uneasiness beyond these areas of common interest it is a matter of common interest that each person must seek his own personal best interest further in the process of seeking and in the processes of keeping It is a common interest to all that each remain unmolested molestation by some by others violates both personal interests and any real common good that can be discerned the question to be posed is a derivative of the situation men experience how can a system of procedure be found which will make possible the maximum self-seeking self-keeping of men individually without impairing the same maximum self-seeking and self-keeping pro of all other men must men live in an armed camp forever engaged in holding back some so that others may prosper is there such a scarcity of resources and goods that some must be masters and others slaves is our ability to procreate so large and our ability to produce so meager as malthus opined that there will always be those who are pressing upon the food supply and only the fortunate and strong will eat it is against this background that the ideal of autarky emerges. The fundamental premise of autarky is rooted in Stoicism. See Zeno, Imphiris, Marcus Aurelius. The Stoics understood that each man does control his own energy and his own person because of this observable fact of nature and because of the fact that man has a rational ability to foresee the results of his actions. It follows that each man is responsible for his choices and actions. The preachment of the Stoics can be summed up in this phrase, control yourself. To this end, the Stoics were among the first who philosophically supported the idea of individual liberty. Nor did they imagine that liberty was a mere lack of control so that any man could do exactly as he pleased. On the contrary, the requirement was rigid self-discipline. Freedom was not to be construed as a license. Liberty could only endure when individuals voluntarily refrained from imposing their wills upon others. In other areas, the Stoic philosophy wanders inexcusably. It counsels a complete rigid submission to the gods, almost makes poverty a virtue, and extols the ability to suffer to the point where self-control becomes self-denial. Having obtained the Stoic virtue of self-control, autarky passes to the Epicureans and owes them a debt of gratitude, for the Epicureans, see Epicurus, reorganized that man is a profit seeking creature and prefers pleasure to pain. Man will always seek to avoid pain, losses of anything he values, and will always seek to experience as much pleasure, profit, gain as possible. Nor are pleasure, profit, gain, or even delight and ecstasy forbidden. To live is good, to live well is better, to live in abundance, security, and joy is the acme of living. Both Stoics and Epicureans saw that a social whole is a pleasant fiction. The building material out of which any social unit is created is always the individual. You do not create social perfection by molding a rigid platonic state in which political coercive organization dominates and eclipses the individual. Rather, if you can educate men to control themselves, the social whole will take care of itself. But the doctrine of autarky was still incomplete granted that each man could and must control himself granted that men will seek profit and avoid loss but is this practical isn't it true that men will seek profits by imposing their will on others isn't it true that men will seek to compel others to share in their loss while they reserve their profits for themselves isn't it true that some men are fundamentally incapable of self-control and hence to preserve the social good or the common good of non-molestation an agency of molestation must be created which will hold back the malfactor praxeology offered the answer austrian economists enlarging on the works of menger and bohem bawerk were able to define the workings of a free economy in scientific terms if men are free to pursue their individual economic aims motivated by grim economic necessity, and if they are unmolested by the agency of coercion, the greatest good for the greatest number will emerge. See von Mises, The Anti-Capitalistic Mentality and other writings. The Stoics provide the moral framework, the Epicureans, the motivation, the Praxeologists, the methodology. I propose to call this package of ideological systems, Autarchy, because Autarchy means self-rule. It is true that the word autarky has fallen upon evil times. Usually when the word is employed, it has been given a social complexion. Autarchy, customarily in this usage spelled autarchy, is employed to designate the economically self-sustaining state. But this is improper and a corruption of the original meaning. Auto means self. Archy means rule. Autoarchy is a self-rule. It means that each person rules himself and no other. The autarchist not only rules himself, but operates within a voluntary context respecting economic necessity. Autonomy is a similar word with similar origin. It it too supposes self-rule. The word has customarily escaped the economic implication which is found in autarky. It has been employed primarily to denote these communities or nations which practice democracy. An autonomous country is one in which the majority or the plurality Select the rulers who will impose their wills upon a total population. An autonomous can be construed as one who supports the idea that self-rule is nothing more than majority rule. This too is a distortion with the social coloration impinging upon the original meaning. The word autocracy likewise has been subjected to social implications. This word also means self-rule, but it has been corrupted to mean total rule by one man over others. The enormous effect of reliance upon political structures and the collective mystique is seen in our vocabulary. Three words, all essentially meaning self-rule and self-control, have been corrupted to imply collective rule of one kind or another. I propose to reclaim autoarchy to its original meaning. There are plenty of words so that the communication and expression will not be impaired by reserving this usage and spelling. For what was originally intended as i will use the word autoarchy will signify total self-rule it will presume a system of social arrangement in which a person assumes full responsibility for himself proceeds to control himself exercises authority over himself supports himself takes initiative joins with others or not as he so pleases and does so in such a way not to seek any impose his will of force upon any other persons whatsoever the matter of uniting others must first receive consideration it is often assumed by persons claiming to be individuals and who therefore feel they are auto minded that organization is both unnecessary and fundamentally immoral or improper frequently we hear such persons claiming that the individualist is he who can support himself without any help from anyone else the individualist is totally independent It is claimed, any organization invariably takes away something of a man's freedom. The moment a person joins any kind of group endeavor where two or more persons are involved, then choices and actions are curtailed and harnessed. The individuality is impaired to the degree that this occurs. Conversely, those who submit gladly to the concept of the general will or the common good stand opposed to any trace of individualism. The person who seeks profits is narrow and selfish, it is charged. The great pleasures of life come from serving others. It is more blessed to give than to receive. There are a score or more similar platitudes ending with the conviction that no man is an island, and that he must invariably harness his individualistic impulses or become a societal problem, a sort of antisocial anarchism carried over the savage times. Autarchy is more of a practical view, and neither extreme in either direction. It holds that men control their energy individually, and hence, whether it is desirable or not, men are individuals. Individuality is one of the great facts of nature. No two persons are alike so far as their respective aptitudes, capacities, and energies, or even longevities, are concerned. Perhaps the closest look man has yet obtained of the universe confirms the fact that the individuality is the first rule. But Autarchy does not stop here. Looking at the matter of survival for a man, it is at once discernible that no man is strong enough, wise enough, or will live long enough to produce all the products he will need and want for his own existence. The individualist who contends that a strong individual can live without the help of the others is wrong. The collectivist who denies individuality is wrong. Autarchy seems to deal with both realities. To do so, it supports the freedom of each individual to retain his individuality so long as he wishes without the threat of force imposed upon him by others. Likewise, autarchy holds that uniting with others in a common objective is not a violation of freedom, but an illustration of it. The only reservation is that all parties to any union must decide individually that they wish to unite. Within the framework of autarky, no individual group or group of individuals may properly force any other to do anything against his will. Autarky would support the free market because the free market requires no coercion whatsoever. At any point where either aristocrats or democrats seek to coerce any person or group for any reason whatsoever, The principles of autarky vanish and political organization appears a person enters the market hoping to sell a product some buy the product but others do not and will not autarky forbids the seller to force a single buyer to his cash register likewise it forbids the buyer to compel the seller to continue selling or to change the price the seller is free to sell his produce at any price desirable to him The buyer is free to try to purchase what he wishes at any cost he is willing to assume. The product or service offered or sought does not alter the rule of procedure. The principle stands. If one person wishes to buy protection, he has only to seek to purchase it. If others agree with him as to the amount and the kind of protection each is willing to buy, they have only to pool their energies and resources and thus procure it if there are some who do not wish it they have only to make this decision and they remain unmolested they cannot be forced into any organization or cooperative endeavor for the common good let us suppose that one person wishes to associate with another when the association is mutually sought it occurs if one person rejects an association that another desires individuality is sustained autarky Preserves the right of the individual to say no. The collectivist point of view forbids a no, but individualism sometimes forbids yes. Autarky favors total freedom of choice so that each individual acting in his own best interests as he sees it can either say yes or no. Therefore, with autarky, no voluntary union of any sort is banned. It can and will exist whenever two or more persons wish to it to exist but it will never come into existence unless at least two persons favor it. This opens up the door to a kind of cooperative endeavor, provide only that no coercion is employed at any point. Because it opens the door to economic organization of any kind or size, maximum production and distribution can and will occur, to the degree that autarky has been practiced in this country or elsewhere. Enormous advances have been made and great human satisfactions have been experienced. Each business, industry, or activity profits as it voluntarily attracts people to its wares or services. If it fails to attract enough people, it will not profit, but nothing will be done to compel support of a given business or to prevent patronage. Competition in such an instance would be as near maximum as all other natural factors permit. The practical aspects of autarky as well as its desirable features, are generally understood by millions of persons except at one point. This is the point relating to possible molestation. It is obvious that the system of self-rule advocated under the name autarky is both feasible and desirable if molestation does not occur. The problem of autarky is to deal with the molestation in a manner that is consistent with self-rule and that does not, for the sake of expediency, fall into the same trap, that has waywardly virtually every culture of which we have knowledge. Whenever in the past the problem of possible molestation has appeared, it has been customary for men to create political and military organizations to deal with this problem. The difficulty here is, political and military organizations in themselves are agency of molestation. Theoretically, they are to be limited to molestation of those who have been molested by others. Practically, they have never been so limited. The agency on which mankind has relied in all its various forms and guises has proven to be the major source of all trespasses and molestation. The cure has created deeper problems than the disease. To to cure the common cold, we have contracted a political pneumonia. It is the purpose of this paper to discuss various sundry efforts that have been made through the centuries to create a political organization that would limit itself to preventing predation or to punishing the predator. Obviously, protection of life and property is desirable. Efforts to provide this protection are meritorious, provided that these efforts are limited to protection and do not in themselves become predatory. But there has grown up, largely since the formation of the United States and our representative system, the idea that governments can be and are limited by democratic processes. Further, It is believed that the creation of a constitution which binds the hands of lawmakers successfully restrains the state and makes it malleable and adaptable to the general will yet even a casual glance at the american government will reveal that the central power accumulated here is virtually unlimited it molests its citizens each and every year and extracts from them an ever larger sum of their earnings It embarks upon enormous economic and military expeditions. It employs millions of personnel, spends billions, intervenes in affairs of other nationals around the world, and truckles at its truculent by turns as it pleases current administrators. Yet, the illusion persists that the American government is one of limited powers. From whence comes this illusion? The American government is largely made up of British antecedents, at least in so far in legal theory is concerned. It is noteworthy that the Whig faction in Britain, the politically liberal left, championed the idea of representative government. Earlier kings were presumed to hold divine sanction. In most countries, this view was supported for a very long time. In Britain, traceably probably to the Anglo-Saxon times, the idea of representative government had emerged as an exploitation from the folk moot, or tribal assemblies. As early as 1265, the British had established what is remembered as the Simon de Montfort Parliament. Representation was assured, though kings were still viewed as divinely ordained. Following Elizabeth and in the reign of James I, opposition to an unchallenged authority of the monarch gained ground. Men like Sir Edward Coke worked ardently to enhance the prestige of Parliament and to curtail the unbridled power of a single ruler. This representative opposition solidified into what was called the Whig party in 1679 during the times of James, Duke of York. This same political group became the organized political left and the source of American resistance to the British Crown as early as 1714 after the ascension of George I. The Whigs, or the representatives who opposed divine and unchecked mor- monarchical sway, took the position that no subject of the crown should be taxed without the approval of his representative. While this militant Whig opposition originally was identified with the property-owning or burgher class, it later broadened its base and, after 1824 in America, was one of the two recognized political parties. Americans became preeminent in the world in supporting the idea that the democratically formed representative bodies provided a limited government. But this was not the case. From the standpoint of the king, accustomed to total power, parliament definitely tied his hands, and kings opposed the move, but lost the battle. A government with the power residing both in an executive and legislator was definitely a government of divided power. In America... We provide a third division and introduce the judicial branch as a separate and district repository of coercive force to the men in government this division of power always ties down and limits their respective functions the executive can be checked by the legislator the legislator by the executive and either of these by the supreme court this is in theory a limited government but to the men outside of government a division of power is no such thing a limitation It makes very little difference to the taxpayer whether he is regimented by the executive decree, steamrolled by the legislative encampment, or sent to jail by the judicial writ. All the political power that exists is in the political organization. That power is not limited. It is merely channeled into one or another branch. And while it can be contended that this introduction of competition between competing branches serves to check each branch, the rules of competition are such that it will almost invariably stimulate growth each branch grows and all branches combine to consolidate one vast unlimited power that is wholly unchecked when men compete with each other to provide better mousetraps the growth of the best firms can be predicted such competition stimulates self-discipline create superior products, and tend towards price reductions, but when men compete within political organizations, such competition relates to the assessment of power and becomes in fact rivalry and taxing and coercive ability, which agency of power gains the people themselves lose. But we have been conditioned for so many centuries to suppose that political and military organizations are necessary to deal with molestation that any suggestion to the contrary is apt to fall on deaf ears. By relying on various political organizations to prevent trespass, or if not to prevent, at least to punish the careless marauder, we have actually created the very condition most feared. Men united in legalized armed bands roam the earth for purposes of imposing molestation upon any who oppose them in order to pay for the costs of these armed bands harmless and innocent taxpayers of the world are trespassed constantly the degree of trespass varying in precise ratio as they are able to bear the burden the human situation so far as the true human picture is concerned is one of chaos and wild disorder But the nature of this disorder, having been legalized, nearly everyone makes legal confusion with orderly and peaceful procedures. It is the height of non-reason to suppose that molestation will be enlarged and enhanced by two systems which are opposite to each other, i.e. autarky and the political state. If molestation can be put down by political and legal organizations, then reliance upon the political and legal organization is justified. In that case, a growth of political and legal organization will reduce and eliminate the molestation. For better than 6,000 years, we have relied upon the political and legal organization to put down molestation. The facts are plainly in evidence. Political and legal structures enlarge constantly, and as they enlarge, the area of molestation increases. We fancy that we are made secure by law and police power. But the more the laws multiply and the larger the police power becomes, the less security, the more uncertainty, and the larger the invitation to trespass. The crutch upon which we have been taught to lean on for our security turns out to be the very device by which we are undone. We cannot have it both ways, and the evidence is plain. It is scarcely news that governments can add and do inflict tyranny. It is hardly a revelation that when we discover that big governments lead to big wars and combinations of governmental structures in one or another form of empire commit more predation and cause more damage among helpless and innocent victims that all other private trespassers combined could have ever even committed or even done. Indeed, it would be safe to say that the trespasses, legal murders, extortions, tortures, and acts of theft and vandalism committed by all private persons in 6,000 years could hardly total the likes and acts of criminality performed by any single generation within the same period by the legal and aggressive governments. But so caught up are we in the mystique of government that somehow we avoid looking at the evidence. We adore the agency that molests us. So fearful are we of the possibility of occasional trespass that we approve trespass organized on a grand scale, performed legally by men who say they represent us, and who loot us and kill us for the good of the societal whole. If molestation on a grand scale is demonstrably the result of reliance upon predatory political organization, it follows that if such reliance were to be removed, all other factors remaining constant the worst to be anticipated would be molestation on a small scale. That is not to say that autocracy supports petite molestation, but it is to suggest that if we must choose between grand theft and petite theft, the latter is preferential. At this point, so pervasive is the reliance upon political forms that the greatest friction of all emerges. It is presumed by those who support the status quo that in order to put down the legal molestation, All that is necessary is that the agencies of molestation be put in the hands of good men. Then, only bad men will be molested, and most of us being good can live in peace and security. We have so abused our minds with great doses of fiction that we are ready for almost any fiction provided that it comes to us with the seal of government attached. By this process, we have been led to believe that the world is divided between good men, us, and the bad men, others. If people live within geographic confines lorded over by our own political strepities, they are presumed to be good in the main. The bad men live elsewhere. Our intentions are peaceful and productive. Their intentions are rapacious and warlike. Only Americans are pure. Therefore, we must have an agency of predation to keep the rest of the world at bay. Examine the system we have established for our security. First, an agency is created capable of general spoilation. This is followed at once, not by any protective procedure, but by a general act of trespass wherein all men, the innocent and guilty alike, are looted systematically by the wherewithal and the means of which this agency can be sustained. This general act of molestation is justified on the grounds that by legal molestation, illegal molestation will cease, but nothing ever ceases. Molestation continues to occur. The victim already victimized by the political organization, is now injured one way or another by a private and unorganized trespasser. It is at this point that our mighty political organization springs into action not to prevent the damage, for it has already occurred, but to take vengeance against the private perpetrator of damage. In some cases, but no means in every case, the malfactor is identified, arrested, arranged, held, examined, tried, and convicted, and punished. To pay for the enormous costs involved, the Agency of Public Protection now trespasses all of the taxpayers again. It is has been said that crime does not pay. Surely it does not pay the criminal, but the system we have established does pay for a host of persons and the maintenance and the enlargement of enormous and impressive establishments where they perpet criminal can be dealt with summarily at the hands of a grand professional class of criminal chasers. The cost of crime now relates largely to the professional anti-criminals. The actual damage performed by the criminal himself is minute in comparison. This is the system. It is invoked both locally and nationally. Indeed, it is invoked internationally. In the name of protecting some, everyone is molested. Can a worse system be ever devised? If we do not have these politically organized deterrents to petite crime, would not the situation worsen immeasurably? I do not know. I only know that for some six thousand years or more we have tried organized political force as a means for creating and maintaining security. That force has operated under the management of men who were as kindly as cruel in turn as those against whom the force was arrayed, though the year's greater and greater reliance has been placed upon this agency of force. I note that during this period, aggression, violence, murder, coercion, Of every description have continued and in periods when governments expand coercion follows if as it appears there is an interaction between criminal actions and political restraint both enlarging or subsidizing side by side then it follows that we are no longer place our reliance upon the political organization but seek for our security in other directions the incidence of crime ought to diminish will it no one can be certain But in the interest of truth, in the interest of survival, we ought to make certain we know where reliance upon political organization has always taken us in the past and is in the process of taking us now if we do not know that reliance upon autarky and self-rule will bring amelioration, at least in theory it does. What little evidence exists where political structures as such have not been relied upon provides a great reservoir of hope. Read existing evidence concerning the ancient Etruscans and Hebrews. The early Islamic peoples did not rely on political organizations. Neither did the early American colonies, except in very meager doses. With several major powers in the world now equipped with devices by means, of which the awesome power of the atom can be released for purposes of destruction. I question whether or not reliance upon such potentially dangerous and costly instruments as political organizations can longer be afforded without at least examining alternative procedures. There is no reason to debate the question as to whether or not mankind made an error when political structures were first devised. The innovation apparently occurred sometime in early barbarism, It may be satisfactory for barbaric or savage peoples, but civilization brings its refinements, both in manners and in murders. And a civilized people, which cling to instruments of barbarism, is doomed to abandon whatever constructive role the future may hold. Civilization may lie before us, but it cannot be based upon barbarous practices, nor can it be based upon one last holocaust by means of which barbaric tools are employed to win the world from barbarism. Certainly, most will confess that the system we have is far from ideal, and many will concede that the present direction being taken by virtually all the world as it girds up its zones for wars offers a horrifying spectacle. But it will be said that autocracy is too visionary, too ideal, dependent entirely upon a virtual alteration of human nature before it could work. Further, it will be repeated that if one human being chose to disregard the principles of non-molestation, the entire concept would come to grief. This is the great practical appeal that autarky has, because it combines the stoic virtues with the practical aspects found in economic science. Not only is no alteration of human nature required, reliance may be placed upon man and the nature he has always exhibited. Autarky is predicted upon the assumption that men will not always recognize truth, that they will often be narrow in their views, that they will be stubborn, intractable, yet self-seeking to a total degree. The system of autarky is based upon the human characteristic of profit-seeking. It includes the idea that the pleasure is more desirable than pain, that each person will always seek to minimize his costs, not only in money and energy, but also physical cost. It includes the idea that each of us will always seek to gain more than we have now. Failing this, each will try to minimize or totally prevent losses. We need not remake the human race in this regard. This is the way men have been. It is the way they are. It is predictably the way they will remain this way into the future. It is essential to point out that autarky does not require acceptance by every human being where this is true prospects for improving the human situation would indeed be bleak but the story of mankind if it tells us anything reveals that human beings are not alike they do not march forward out of a grim and savage past shoulder to shoulder rather the evidence shows that men stagger forward behind a few innovators who blaze new trails in the same world here at that moment aboriginals use the boomerang and have flies crawling over the naked eyeball there are a great and enlightened minds fighting disease learning more and more about physical reality trying desperately not always with success to make human life better more enriching or more desirable how can both these conditions exist now on the same planet they do they always have concurrence in a given belief or practice has never occurred in the past so far as I can learn it is entirely unlikely that it will occur in the future autarky does not depend upon any such concord rather autarky means one thing only it means that the reality of government is placed in the hands of each human being not to impose upon others but to impose upon himself it means that we can reverse our present direction and move towards a more desirable future when those who are the true intellectuals stop trying to impose their wills upon others and instead impose strict self-rule upon themselves history teaches us that men who will not control themselves will invariably serve to justify others who will impose controls upon them and when our intellectual champion ideas relating to controlling others it is inevitable that the moves will be made wherein such controls will appear open rebellion against the entrenched political authority serves to justify a strengthening of that authority force begets force violence begets violence government of a political character by strong men creates the pressure to impose another government of a political character by the will of a still stronger men government must not be abolished they must be abandoned they will not be abandoned when you demonstrate that you can manage your affairs without the supervision of a praetor familias In short, when you abandon your political adolescence and come of age, you will stop seeking to impose your will upon others, and at the same time, demonstrate that your will is strong enough to control your own actions within a framework of non-molestation. Do this in your own case, with your own life, and in your own affairs, and no political agent or agency can justify its existence on the grounds that you require its help. Of course, autarky is an ideal. Is there any reason to devote one's self to something that is less than ideal? But it is so ideal as to be impractical? Not at all. Autarchy is being born right now under the noses of political authorities. Already here and there, far-seeing men sensing the practical aspects of self-rule as contrasted either to no-rule, anarchy, or political rule of any sort, are making personal, High spirited resolutions. They are resolving to adjust their affairs in such a manner that they no longer require an overseer. They are resolving to do no harm to any man. They are resolving to solve all their problems without political assistance. No political agent or agency can possibly object to such a procedure, yet, just such a procedure will reduce political structures to a shadow of their present bedrith and scope autarky produces a social solution by the process of individual self-control. It is an individualistic reg- revolution, bloodless and without violence, which simply shifts reliance from group consciousness to individual consciousness. Group solutions need to be s- not be sought. When the intellectual elite begin, a Zeno suggested to try to encourage men who will control themselves regardless of provocation or problem, The groups will take care of themselves. Will men be perfect then? Certainly not. But men will seek their own personal gain within the most practical framework open to them. It will be enormously profitable for the rich and poor alike to abandon reliance upon political organization. Economic science shows that the greatest good for the greatest number will be served in a free market. All that has to be added is the recognition that protection is neither more nor less than a free market service, nor is it restributive. It will protect prior to the commission of a crime. But what if it does not? Would any free market protective device or practice positively guarantee non-molestation? Of course not. Nor does our present system. The free market can never guarantee any sort of panacea. Do you have a motor car that is guaranteed against possible mechanical failure? No. But do you seek because an automobile might break down or get a flat tire to abandon automobiles? Is there a razor blade that will not dull? Is there a battery that will not run down? Is there a medicine that will eliminate all sickness? Is there a house that will never need repair? Because imperfect man makes imperfect devices does not cause us to abandon those devices. Rather. It encourages us to try again and seek to improve on what we have, and with autarky, we need to not be confined to systems that continually demonstrate their impracticability. If a particular device proves to be faulty, improve it. If a particular custom does not bring the results sought, invent or devise a new practice. Autarky is but human liberty elevated to the status of principle, but autarky does not suggest a lack of social organization a lack of cooperative effort. On the contrary, autarky presumes that men outside of political organizations have at least as much self-interest and mental acumen as men inside such organizations. Autarky sees nothing mystical nor magical about political structures, rather it strips away all the pretense and shows them for what they are, monsters of human contrivance capable of predation against all. The autarchist will control himself in his best interest. He will cooperate with others, individually or in groups, when he wishes to do so for his own gains. If he does not believe that cooperation in a given case will benefit him, he will refrain from such cooperation. He will not be coerced. He will refrain from coercing others, even for their own good. He will replace the apparent necessity for general coercion by clear evidence that he requires no coercion. He will no longer concern himself with what others ought to do because he will be too busy doing what he ought to do. The autocris is an intellectual activist. He is a builder, not a destroyer. And that ends the article by Robert Lefrave. And man, this one was a banger. Good Lord. It had so many good parts in here. So many good pieces. So many good little nuggets of information that just man just blew my mind reading this piece. I hope you guys found so much good information in here and found ways to uh apply that to your life, apply that to your current situation. You know, this is why you know I'm trying to, you know, find the truth of what the individual means and what individual decision making and autonomy of each individual is like the you know, the the crux of The societal greater, you know, whole clivication of, you know, this person, the individual, is the one who creates the greater collective. Like, without the individual, without the autonomy of the person making the decisions for themselves, that no other situation, which some other person anywhere, for any matter, has an agency over that person. Um... Let's see. What's another good one here? Trying to find a good one here. The good, uh, good quotes. Good quotes. Good quotes. Ah, here we go. Here we go. Uh, the part where he talks about the different uh words for autonomy and autocracy. How these words have been molested in this a way of sorts like this is this not what we see in our world today when which we have certain words that mean certain things but yet we have the platitude of these fucking government assholes deciding to just change what those words mean so that they can mean something other than what they're actually intended to mean like autocracy and autonomy are both words that mean self-governance but when you look at them in their practical use of the world today we see that that the whole nonsense of you know being some one person who rules over others and you know the autonomous can be construed as one who supports the idea of self-rule is nothing more than majority rule and that's exactly what we have in this current situation The, the the democracy is the autonomy of majority rule over others and like what so it's it's nice to see that you know he Robert actually sees these you know discrepancies in what actually words mean and how they're actually used within the world today and I feel like that's an actual attack on language like if you and I cannot agree upon the same definition of a word we cannot communicate the whole point of a word is that we both have an agreed upon definition so that we can actually converse with one another I like that Robert points out that molestation itself, you know, just the act of interference in in, and in itself, the point of that happening, like because we have this huge blob of a thing called government and because they decide to intervene wherever they decide to intervene, whether it be. Economically, whether it be politically, whether it be, you know, for defense, like because they actually intervene, that act itself is of a molestation because the individual people within said area of whatever degree they that the molestation actually occurs they didn't ask for that they didn't actually voluntarily agree to be helped by this blob of government government just kind of barges in there like hey we're the government and we're here to help you like what this is the problem with the situation of government's existence like we the entire point of that intervention destroys any and all ability for anyone to actually know what would have happened had government not done the things that it did. Like, there's this idea that people have in their heads that the world is the way that it is because government has been existence for the longest time, which is totally untrue. Like, because government has existed and because government has actually intervened into all of aspects of human life, we are unable to extrapolate out how things would have been otherwise. Government is not a reasoning for the world existing today. The reason for the world existing today is because individual people have taken individual actions and created the world that they wanted to see. But because government has intervened along the way, we could not see a world in which the government does not continue to do exactly the intervening and the molestation of the individual itself. So like i don't know this is just a part that i try to wrap my head around and just try to understand myself that could the these wars that we've had around the world like could they have not been settled in maybe a week's time had government not continued to pillage and fund these wars could certain aspects of the world not have been happened like uh i don't know like We will never know because government was always there and had their fucking finger in the cookie jar every single time. I also like that Robert throws this part where he talks about the division of our, quote unquote, limited government of the judicial, legislative and executive branches in which, you know, that, oh, we all try to hoorah America. Yeah, we've got these checks and balances that stop the power. But like when you step outside of that ideal, you step outside of that indoctrination, look at the power structure for what it is. Look at the U.S. government for what it is on the outside. When you look at it, what do you see? Do you not see more politicians being employed, more federal agents being employed, more powers being enacted by the executive branch? That's all that is. Like We have created the thing that we feared the most by creating the government. We have created the big giant blob of power that's left unchecked with nobody to stop it by creating this entity like that. We have to become realist and look at the reality that's faced upon us like this is the reality that we live in here today. Really love this when I hear this, the quote goes at this point, so pervasive is reliance upon political forms that the greatest fiction of all emerges. It is presumed by those who support the status quo that in order to put down legal molestation, all that is necessary is that agencies of molestation be put in the hands of good men, and then only bad men will be molested, and most of us, being good, can live in peace and security. Like, is that not the epitome of what most people, quote unquote, statists advocate for? Like, That we believe that we will put these agencies in place. Therefore, only the bad people are going to be targeted and us good people are going to be left alone. Like what? Can we not look at the stark reality of the world and realize that those agencies in which we put the authoritative power in their hands don't give two shits who's good and who's bad? They are the ones that get to walk around and decide for themselves who is good and who is bad. Now we have this two-tiered system of a class of people who have the authority to rule and those that are ruled by them. Like, that's such a good, succinct way to summarize the myth of authority, the myth of government being an altruistic entity. Because that's what they are. That's the only way that government can exist is in an altruistic manner. And has not the greatest crimes of humanity been created and hinged upon altruistic behavior? Like you as an in person cannot act in the best interest of another human being. Let's see, what else do we have? What else was like another good one? Yes, 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 this point right here. When he talks about the victim, already victimized by the political organization, is now injured one way or another by a private and unorganized trespasser. It is at this point our mighty political organization springs into action, not to prevent the damage, for that has already occurred, but to take a vengeance against the private perpetuator of the damage. In some cases, but by no means in every case, the malefactor is identified, arrested, arraigned, held, examined, tried, convicted, and punished. Like, that is a perfect summation of what happens. Like, people want to have this, quote unquote, you know, they are led to believe to have this, quote unquote, entity that is called government that they need to protect them. But what actually ends up happening is that you still end up getting violated because you are deferring the responsibility of your own safety and the protection of your property to another individual that you still have the action of violation occur to you and then government takes over afterwards and seeks to to get restitution after the fact. Like if we could all just wrap our minds around that we have the agency and the ability to decide for ourselves when I need protection, that I should be able to decide when I need protection and not obfuscate that responsibility to other individuals, that far fewer violations of our property would actually occur but because we don't do this and because we actually look to someone else to provide protection for our own property and our own agency of ourselves that now look at what we have we have this giant system like because of all those things we have to do they have to be identified arrested arraigned held examined tried and convicted now we have to employ policemen uh we have uh what do they call the 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 investigators for the person we got uh, the 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 jailers to hold him in arraignment. Then we have the bailiffs and the judges that have to go to the court systems. Like now we have all these other things that have to be extrapolated out and forced upon and paid for by people through the force of coercion and molestation in order to make that system sustainable versus if you as a person individually was able to take agency over yourself and over your own protection, you could stop the person from violating your property and your ability to choose not to take agency with them right away and we could eliminate all those jobs that have only a reason to exist because we don't want to take responsibility to actually take care of our own lives (laughs) and i like how he also shows that you know when you actually comparison like we have the giant crime of government or the small minute crime of a single individual person like that is the it's minute in comparison like is this not what most statists actually advocate for when they vote they go well I'm just choosing the lesser of the two evils like okay so if you're going to choose the lesser of those two evils why not choose the lesser of the ultimate evils which is choosing to deal with the the lesser evil of the crime of the individual's Versus the crime of the actual government, which is way worse and way bigger than the two. Like there's no logical consistency within these people because they don't actually see it and look at it this way. That by choosing to vote for government, you're actually choosing to vote for a greater evil than the lesser evil of your neighbor. If that ever even actually occurs, because most of the time, most people just want to be left alone and just do their own thing. Like most of the time when people are actually committing acts of evil and criminality against other individuals, it's because that person is economically in dire straits and there's an economic incentive for them to violate your property. If all people were actually given the ability to actually provide value to other individuals and be compensated for to do whatever it is that they actually wanted in the world, there probably would be a lot less crime. But because we have this overarching government that – induces crime upon everyone at every level in every degree that every individual is actually making the most rational decision in their current situation that you know what if they're doing it you know why can't i do that (laughs) anyway uh this article was really good hope you guys enjoyed it i will get around to getting back on myth of defense i think this weekend Hopefully, my mom and family, when they come down this weekend for Father's Day, I'm hoping that uh, I'll be able to sneak in an hour or two uh, to uh, record some episodes while they go off and run around and do stuff. But uh, with that, we're going to close out today's episode, and I hope you guys enjoyed. Till next time.